0: You're listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. Hey, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update on social media. Thanks, as always, for joining us this week. A lot to talk about new developments in the cover-up and corruption uh, concerning the Biden family. Uh, A new big case out of the Supreme Court that's great news for... Uh, private property and uh, the rule of law and of course the left is outraged about it plus we've got some uh, major uh, developments in the case to get the manifesto out of the government's hands in in Tennessee as the public records law requires Uh, plus a new investigation into uh, the ongoing uh, banking scandal I call it a scandal uh, by the Biden administration uh, first up is the big news uh, that uh, in terms of corruption this week, I know there there's been news about uh, DeSantis entering the campaign. And I think uh, well, I don't think I know. Tim Scott, I guess, is entering the campaign as well uh, for presidency. Uh, but really, the big news is, and I wish all the candidates would focus on it, is the endemic corruption in the Biden administration specifically. Uh, tied to Joe Biden and his family Uh, and as you may recall a few weeks ago I talked about disclosures made by uh, Congressman Comer who chairs the Oversight Committee in the House that he was able to obtain banking records of Biden family bank members showing money laundered from places like China by the millions into LLC's in a way to disguise their origin uh, and to conceal um, Uh, from prying eyes which strongly suggests given the nature of the monies and the fact evidently that there weren't really ongoing business concerns but slush funds for the individual family members that it was a money laundering operation uh, designed to take advantage of the vice president uh, then at the time president vice president Biden so significant corruption issues right and of course the media doesn't really care about that because it's all about getting Trump Uh, But Judicial Watch has been insistent in getting information about the threat to our national security caused by Joe Biden being corrupt and family members around him being corrupt, namely Hunter and all the rest. Uh, And uh, to its credit, CBS News did a major story uncovering or detailing the allegations by an IRS whistleblower that showed, for instance, that the Biden Justice Department, and frankly, it looks like the Trump Justice Department, the deep staters there in 2020 intervened and tried to derail or slow uh, and otherwise impede an investigation into Hunter Biden's tax issues that flowed from him getting monies from abroad that evidently uh, he wasn't reporting. And as as I've highlighted before, uh, you can't really make the case against Hunter Biden without implicating Joe, because as you know, Joe was getting money from Hunter, at least according to the laptop and other evidence. And the whistleblower uh, talked to CBS News, and I want to go over a little bit specifically what he was talking about, because uh, other than hearing it on CBS News, you can be sure you won't hear it anywhere else. His name is Gary Sh- Shapley, or Shapley. He was a 14 year He's he is a 14 year veteran of the Internal Revenue Service. And he said uh, he was concerned about prosecutors handling of a high profile controversial investigation and that he felt duty bound to blow the whistle and to sound alarms. And the investigation, according to CBS News, is the investigation into Hunter Biden's tax issues. And this is what he said, there were multiple steps that were, were slow walked, were just completely not done at the direction of the Department of Justice. When I took control of this particular investigation, so evidently he led it for the IRS, I immediately saw deviations from the normal process. It was way outside the norm of what I've experienced in the past. And uh, again, these accusations come more than three years. (laughs) Frankly, it's probably longer than that in terms of how long Hunter's been targeted Uh, into an investigation into Hunter Biden that's been conducted in Delaware by a U.S. attorney appointed by then-President Trump but who now answers to Garland and held over by President Biden to avoid any appearance of political bias. Well, it's still the Justice Department and having a a U.S. attorney in the middle of nowhere uh, with the attendant resources or minimal resources pretend to investigate the president's son uh, while obviously ignoring all sorts of other compromised individuals, including the president, uh, doesn't resolve political bias. That's for sure. Sh- uh, Shapley told, the, uh, told CBS News he became increasingly concerned about measures being taken when, uh, that he said appeared to shield the target of the investigation, as I said, which CBS News independently confirmed as Hunter Biden. Each and every time... It seemed always to benefit the subject. It, se- it just got to the point where the switch was turned on and I couldn't silence my conscience anymore. Now, he's a inv- supervisory invest- special agent with the IRS's Criminal Investigations Department, currently overseeing a team of 12 agents who specialize in international tax and financial crimes. Previously, he was, in the, uh, he was an officer with the National Security Agency's Office of the Inspector General. He was assigned to a sensitive investigation in January 2020, again, the beginning of the campaign. And within months, he said he grew concerned about how the Justice Department was handling the investigation. Uh, it, for a couple of years, we've been noticing these deviations in the investigative process. And I just couldn't, you know, fathom that the DOJ might be acting unethically on this. So uh, he blew the whistle. Evidently, he's told Congress. He told the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, which is the IG in the IRS, and the Justice Department's Inspector General. And uh, evidently, he said that uh, uh, Garland lied when he testified. It's unclear what the lies were about, but that's what people are presuming. When I saw the egregiousness, when I saw the (laughs) egregious, excuse me, when I saw the egregiousness, of these things, it no longer became a choice for me. It's not something that I want to do, it's something I feel that I have to do. And this is my experience and Judicial Watch's experience with whistleblowers. They just can't remain silent in the face of misconduct. Uh, And uh, they're patriots. Uh, They follow the rules of the agencies while others break the rules. And in this case, you have the Justice Department, evidently in the IRS, Uh, being compromised by an effort to protect Joe Biden. What I think is interesting is that how it echoes Durham's conclusions and concerns about the way uh, the Justice Department pursued justice, and I use the term justice loosely, where they were all hot to trot against Donald Trump, and while at the same time uh, thinking of every way to minimize and derail and suppress and shut down investigations into Hillary Clinton. Uh, For instance, we just found out that the Clinton Foundation scandal that Judicial Watch uh, largely uncovered through our own investigations into uh, the speaking fees that um, uh, uh, Bill Clinton was obtaining, the exorbitant speaking fees he he obtained while his wife was Secretary of State from foreign actors plus the pay to play that evidently was going on uh, through the foundation that Judicial Watch uncovered uh, through our email work. We got her emails and and Abedin's emails and other emails that showed that donors contrary to promises were getting special access and favors uh, from the State Department. So our foreign policy was for sale uh, to Clinton Foundation donors. And rather than pursue that, they shut that down and, and stonewalled and slow walked it and according to the New York Times, who did their own little FOIA investigation and finally decided to disclose what they uncovered, uh, that uh, the Justice Department, uh, just before Trump left, said, oh, we don't want to do anything. And I guess the FBI's like, well, that isn't good enough. And it finally, the, FBI, the Justice Department under Biden formally shut down the Clinton Foundation criminal investigation that never really seriously took off in my view, uh, in August, I think it was August of 2021. And according to the documents the New York Times uncovered, the FBI either returned all the evidence it uncovered or destroyed it. So put that in your pipe and smoke it if you're concerned about cover up and corruption for Hillary Clinton. You had this ongoing investigation that Durham disclosed was obviously messed with and that ultimately was shut down, shut down by Hillary Clinton's political allies in the Biden administration. And the evidence was destroyed by the FBI. And what's happening now with Hunter Biden, we have the IRS, an IRS official, top senior lead investigator for the IRS into the Biden corruption Alleging the Justice Department is doing the same thing that it did with Hillary, with Hunter, deviating from the norm, obstructing justice. That's how I interpret this: obstructing justice. So much so he can't remain silent. You know he and I. I know this type. They go to work and they just want to do their job, and when they're told they're not supposed to do their job. And it's obvious because of politics, it, it really ticks them off. And that's what's going on with Hunter Biden. And so now we have evidence that the IRS and the Justice Department worked to protect Hunter Biden in 2020. Again, more election interference. And are still working to protect Hunter Biden and by proxy Joe Biden in the run-up to the 2024 election. Which is exactly the sort of scenario Hunt, uh, was laid out with Hunter, excuse me, by Durham with um, Hillary Clinton, who was treated, as the Durham report discloses, with kid gloves, while uh, Trump was targeted with unprecedented spying and abuse um, based on knowingly false information produced by Hillary. The Hillary gang knew there was nothing there, and of course, uh, as Durham highlighted, uh, the, uh, the Obama, operation in the deep state, all all knew there was nothing there to target Trump with, yet they did it anyway. And it's happening again. Hunter's being protected while Trump is being targeted. And as we were talking about recently, and, and you may have seen in the news, it's it's highly likely uh, Trump is not only going to be, he's already been indicted in New York on fraudulent and pretextual basis. Uh, it's going to happen in Georgia, where the left-wing uh, Democrat po- prosecutor down there is gonna attack Trump and try to prosecute him for exercising his First Amendment rights and his prerogatives as president to ensure the election was clean. And the same thing's gonna happen up here in Washington DC where uh, partisan prosecutors uh, under Joe Biden are going to, in an unprecedented fashion, uh, prosecute Trump over a manufactured document dispute uh, for which they had any legal basis to harass him on and um, the, compar- the comparison and contrasting with how Joe's been protected and Hunter's been protected just further highlights how our Justice Department and FBI are frankly irredeemable. And the IRS no one's ever trusted since the Tea Party, and it goes before that, that the IRS has regularly been used by presidents to target their political opponents. And some of that targeting means also going after one while protecting the other, and obviously, that's been going on here with Hunter Biden. And, and I would just call your attention uh, to and try to tie it for you to the ongoing fight about the debt limit, right? So the Republicans in the House passed a piece of legislation uh, related to the debt limit that required an ex- in exchange for increasing the debt limit, which is already, in my view, astronomically large in places the future of our country in peril uh, with some restrictions and cuts to certain um, funds that have already been passed or just passed by the Biden gang, namely the 80 billion in extra dollars for the IRS. And based on what at least the New York Times is telling telling us, uh, McCarthy is going to agree um, or plans to agree uh, to... uh, only $70 billion for the IRS as opposed to $80 billion for the IRS. So this is at the same time the IRS is implicated in protecting Biden in a corrupt fashion along with the Justice Department and you know the Republicans, hapless as they often are, are going to just not only fund them, but add money to their ability to abuse the American people. You know, so that's the frustrating thing here. And I would suggest, you know, to bring this all together, that in the least, because this debt fight is tied to government corruption, because a lot of the monies that everyone's begging uh, Congress to fund would go to this continued abuse of the American people, either through censorship or the harassing Justice Department investigations of Trump and other innocents, uh, that you call your members of Congress and say, in the least, we need to cut money. I mean, that's, that's the conservative thing to do and the— and frankly, it's corrupt to spend money you don't have in a way that is uh, uh, guarantees corruption and fraud. Uh, but also to tie this debt limit and and whatever the outgrowth of that fight is to uh, curtailing abuses by cutting funding of government abuses. Believe me, I've raised this directly with members of Congress and. What they say is, yeah, I agree, we'll, you know, we'll try to do it in the appropriations process. We, uh, we, would, we wanted to do it in a debt limit, but, you know, there's probably not enough votes there. And it's just, you know, I get the runaround. And um, I tell you, if enough people call and make their concerns known, I think they'll take it more seriously. So I encourage you to call uh, Congress and the House of Representatives at 202-225-3121, 202-225-3121. And uh, this debt limit fight, which in many ways is kabuki theater, it's, it's a manufactured crisis by the Biden administration, that uh, if, if, if we're going to have a debt limit increase, in addition to uh, doing something fiscally responsible, they should do something that curtail government corruption and stop funding it make it clear that they don't want to fund it as it relates um, through the debt limit negotiations and subsequent to that through appropriations because there's urgency here because right now they're planning the jail Trump (laughs) right now abusively they're censoring you with government money right now they're using government money for instance to allow people to cross the border as opposed to repel them from the border so there's a crisis uh, for the rule of law in our constitutional system that is funded by Congress. And do I see a path to defund that? I think there are some options that could be defunded, some some of the worst aspects and DEI and others that Republicans at least want to push in the House. Uh, But in terms of the crises facing us uh, with uh, trying to jail the leading presidential candidate or censoring Americans by the millions every day, like right now, I don't see any, any plan to address that. And I I suggest, if you agree, maybe if you don't agree, call anyway. You know, it's a free country. Tell people what you think. Uh, But those are my concerns. And if you want to share what your concerns are, as I said, call the Congress at 202-225-3121. So, uh, well, before I talk about what Judicial Watch has done to curtail government corruption and abuse, I want to talk about what the Supreme Court has done to curtail government corruption and abuse. And every once in a while, um, the, the Constitu- especially because there are more conservative justices on the Supreme Court than I think have ever been since at least the late 60s, uh, we're, we're getting good decisions out of the court that curtail uh, overreaching government, unconstitutional government and corrupt government. Because in my view, when the government takes power or asserts authority in a way that's unconstitutional, unusually evidently and obviously so, that's corruption. That's stealing liberty, right? That's stealing our right to govern ourselves by, in the case of the executive branch, asserting authorities it doesn't have uh, and hasn't been granted by the American people through Congress. And that's at the heart of this private property uh, regulation case um, related to the Environmental Protection Agency. There was a law passed in the early 70s, the Clean Waters Act, and I'm doing my summary here, so I may be off by a date or two, uh, but uh, the Clean Waters Act essentially allows the federal government in unprecedented ways, and I think in dubious ways, given the limits of the Constitution, uh, to ensure uh, that the waters of the United States, the language is, um, are, are, uh, are kept cleaner and the debate has been where to, where, what, constitute, what constitutes a water of the United States. Now the traditional approach has been that they're navigable. That's been the approach under law and the Constitution, and indeed that was initially the way the law was interpreted, that the jurisdiction to control dumping and things into the waters uh, was restricted to waters that you know, people can transit. Uh, and to a degree there was expansive expansion of that into wetlands, uh, the thinking was they really have to be continu- you know, really adjacent in a, continu- a continu- t- contiguous way uh, with the river or lake or, or whatever that is um, subject to federal jurisdiction. Uh, but, of course, that wasn't enough for the deep staters and the left-wing radicals that wanted to expand authority under this law Uh, to effectively, as the court highlights in this case, uh, to cover virtually, as I will say here, let me see, puddles, swimming pools. Those those are, wait, 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 no. Those aren't covered. They admit that maybe swimming pools aren't covered, but virtually every other so-called wetland or dry land in the United States would be covered. And in the sense covered meaning potentially you would have to go to the EPA before you did anything substantial and the EPA would have to decide whether you could do it or not. And you can just imagine the cost of such the process. And the case in this instance is something I think worth sharing with you because it shows you that this government corruption is just like a constitutional debate. It's something substantial that affects everyday Americans. And the case here were, uh, was on behalf of the Sacketts and Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion uh, describes the issue here and I'll describe it, I'll, I'm gonna quote from it. And I encourage you, by the way, uh, to read the opinion. It's Sackett versus the Environmental Protection Agency. We'll provide a link to it uh, and it's readable. I mean, Supreme Court decisions are, are generally designed for the most part, sometimes they can be quite you know, quite heavy in terms of law, and it's n- not necessarily easy to figure out, you know, why it's important um, or, or uh, understand why it's important. But you often see in Supreme Court uh, opinions, especially ones about important public policy issues, um, that they're accessible and, and the justices go out of their way to make the arguments not only accessible to the lawyers and the courts who have to interpret and apply their decisions, Uh, but also to the American people to whom they're also responsible. So um, Justice Alito describes the case here and really in a way that I think is gonna outrage you. Michael and Chantel Sackett has spent well over a decade, I think it was almost 15 years, navigating the, um, the Clean Waters Act and their voyage has been bumpy and costly. In 2004, they purchased a small lot near Priest Lake in Bonner County, Idaho. In preparation for building a modest home, they began backfilling the property with dirt and rocks. A few months later, the EPA sent the Sacketts a compliance order informing them that their backfilling violated the Clean Water Act because their property contained protected wetlands. The EPA demanded the Sacketts immediately undertake activities to restore the site. That's a quote pursuant to a, quote, restoration work plan, unquote, that it provided. The order pre- threatened the Sackets with penalties of over $40,000 per day if they did not comply. At that time, the EPA interpreted the waters of the United States to include, quote, all waters that could affect interstate or foreign commerce, as well as wetlands adjacent to those waters. Adjacent was defined to mean not just bordering or contigu- contiguous but also neighboring. Agency guidance instructed that officials to assert jurisdiction over wetlands adjacent to non-navigable tributaries when those wetlands also had a significant nexus to a traditional navigable water. A significant nexus was said to exist when wetlands either alone or in combination with similarly situated lands in the region significantly affect the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of those waters. In looking for evidence of a significant nexus, field agents were told to consider a wide range of open-ended hydrological and ecological factors. According to the EPA, the wetlands on the Sackett Slot are adjacent to, in the sense they are in the same neighborhood as, what it described as an unnamed tributary on the other side of a 30-foot road. That tributary tributary feeds into a non-navigable creek, which in turn feeds into Priest Lake, an intrastate body of water that the EPA designated as traditionally navigable. To establish a significant nexus, the EPA lumped the Sackett Slot together with the Kalispell Bay Fen, a large nearby wetland complex that the agency uh, regarded as similarly situated. According to the EPA, these properties taken together significantly affect the ecology of Priest Lake. Therefore, the EPA concluded, the Sackets had illegally dumped soil and gravel onto the waters of the United States. So I want you to take a step back. They had a property across the road from a ditch that led into a creek that led into a a lake. And the federal government came in and tried to destroy them for trying to uh, build on that property. The Sacketts filed suit under the Administrative Procedure Act, which is a federal law that allows you to challenge uh, procedures and regulations and such, alleging that the EPA lacked jurisdiction because any wetlands on their property were quote, not waters of the United States. The district court initially dismissed the suit. The district court is the federal court that you first sue it. Uh, reasoning that the compliance order was not a final agency action, but this court ultimately held that the Sacketts could bring their suit under the EPA. After seven years of additional proceedings on remand, so I want you to think about this. They lost in a district court. They went up to the Supreme Court again, and the Supreme, uh, the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, they have the right to sue at this time. So it gets kicked downstairs, and it's seven years of additional litigation. Uh, The district court, again, after seven years, uh, entered summary judgment for the Environmental Protection Agency. The Ninth Circuit, the appellate court, affirmed holding that the uh, Clean Waters Act covered adjacent wetlands with with a significant nexus to traditional navigable waters and that the Sackett's Sackett's Lot uh, satisfied that standard. And... um, we granted cert to decide the proper tests for determining whether wetlands are waters of the United States, and thankfully, every justice of the Supreme Court agreed the Sacketts were right. Uh, so it's nine nothing in favor of the Sacketts on the judgment, but on as to the reasons for the judgment and the subsequent precedent of the decision, the court was split five four. Unfortunately, uh, Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, wanted to agree with the EPA's analysis uh, with the other with three other liberals on the court Uh, not that Kavanaugh typically is a liberal but in this case I think he was wrong and Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion that found as follows the uh, Clean Waters Act use of waters refers only to geographical features that are described as in, in ordinary parlance as streams oceans rivers and lakes and to adjacent wetlands that are indistinguishable from those bodies of water due to a continuous surface connection. To assert jurisdiction over an adjacent wetland under the CWA, which is, uh, Clean Waters Act, a party must establish first that the adjacent body of water constitutes waters of the United States, i.e. a relatively permanent body of water connected to traditional interstate navigable waters, and second, that the wetland has a continuous surface connection with that water, making it difficult to determine where the water ends and the wetland begins. And that's the new law of the land. And the EPA and the left are furious that the uh, uh, five-court majority, five-justice majority, are uh, ruled in favor of common sense, And restricted the government's right to regulate virtually every piece of private property in the United States of America, if they so chose. I mean, this this was the difference between, you know, we've all I'm sure you've been in and can envision being on a body of water and seeing an adjacent wetland where it gets reedy and swampy and marshy, and you kind of recognize, well, that's not necessarily the river. But it's it's connected to the body of water that you're uh, you're you're traversing. Uh, But for the EPA, they would, you know, go 150 miles away and try to tie the wetland there that isn't necessarily wetland because they define wetlands to include lands that are quite dry. By the way, uh, was connected somehow to the body of water you're on, and so uh, the left is furious that their power grab their effort to abuse the authorities granted to them by the American people to hijack proper private property and control of private property effectively has been um, derailed now in theory it might be changed by uh, congressional action I don't think there's going to be votes to uh, allow the EPA to expand jurisdiction over every um, puddle in the United States but you know the left has little limits as to what they consider Appropriate for federal jurisdiction, uh, but it's great news on behalf of the American people here that this decision, this five-four decision, uh, has uh, vindicated the private property rights not only of the Sacketts but every other American citizen who faces destruction from the EPA uh, because they fill in uh, 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 dump dirt on a backyard that gets damp a few times a year and is uh, you know across the road and down you know and down the way uh, from a stream that enters into a lake or a ditch that enters into a stream that enters into a lake. I mean, that's not the way the government's supposed to work. And you shouldn't have to worry and ask the federal government for permission uh, to uh, exercise your private property rights the way the EPA envisioned. And thankfully, the Supreme Court came up with this common-sense approach here. uh, And, of course, the left is pretending to be furious. They knew they were on thin grounds. They knew they were on the ground here. And um, so they're gonna be using this and expect them to use this as another excuse to try to pack the court and destroy our constitutional system. So to remind you, when you hear court packing, think of just having Congress add new justices to the Supreme Court until they get enough justices that they like that will overturn prior decisions or install uh, new interpretations of the Constitution that they like. And then what happens is the next party comes in, installs a bunch, of new just, a bunch of new justices on top of that to further pack the court to fix the last court packing. And before you know it, you have a Supreme Court that has dozens if not hundreds of people and you have a Supreme Court that is as political as a congressional committee. And that's the end of the rule of law in our nation. And so that's what the left wants to do. So all decisions like this, and I'm sure upcoming decisions, will also be used as an excuse to try uh, to end the Supreme Court as a, as a separate institution under our constitutional system and end um, and, and the, uh, because as you know, the separation of powers the judicial power being separated from the legislative power is designed to protect our liberties, right? That's why the left hates separation of powers, because they want all the powers, the executive the legislative power and the judicial power to be a one entity that they can control, and they don't believe any entities that they control should be prevented from exercising any authority, whether it be judicial, legislative, or executive, whether or not the Constitution allows it, or whether or not the people voted for them to allow, uh, voted for them to exercise that power. (sighs) And even worse, the left has been advocating for lawless and dangerous, and in my view, potentially deadly, We already know that uh, Justice Kavanaugh was almost assassinated uh, with these uh, illegal protests outside the homes of the justices, so can you could expect more of that. Coming up soon out of the Supreme Court are going to be key decisions, I think, which are going to be quite favorable to those of us who want a colorblind constitution that will outlaw uh, uh, admissions policies, which should have been outlawed decades ago, uh, that uh, give a certain member, uh, certain races a leg up in admissions policies that are discriminatory. And the left is furious about that because they want to be able to discriminate on the basis of race uh, so that they can again control our population uh, through spoil systems and by dividing our country uh, and separating us by making us and, and causing chaos and discomfort and anger and making it easier for them to govern because they rely on that in order uh, to achieve their revolutionary goals. So expect vicious attacks on the Supreme Court uh, when that happens next. And Judicial Watch has been um, key uh, and persistent in trying to persuade the Supreme Court to change their position and and fix the law there. And I think we're finally gonna be successful along with many others who have been laboring in the vineyards for decades. Uh, to try to restore the idea that when the law is applied and uh, it it ought to fairly apply to all races equally and not treat some races better than others as a matter of course. So be prepared for the deluge when the left loses that one either next week or uh, in the weeks following. So a lot going on. And one of the, um, you know, we're talking about the IRS scandal and the Biden corruption scandal, but we're not, you know, just going to rely on whistleblowers coming forward or Congress exposing what happened uh, to try to get to the bottom of this because we think the more people asking questions and demanding accountability, the better. We welcome the whistleblowers. We defend whistleblowers. As I said, we were defending Marcus Allen, the FBI um, uh, employee who was def... uh, testifying before Congress last week about the abuses he saw uh, and abuses he suffered at the FBI because he was uh, uh, daring to speak out and speak up as his job duties required uh, about their crazed approach to the January 6th um, uh, disturbance. Uh, That's great. So we represent the whistleblowers. Congress is doing more than it has previously in many ways to uncover some of this government corruption. Uh, we talked about earlier how James Comer highlighted the family corruption of Joe Biden by exposing these monies coming in from foreign sources to be laundered through secretive LLCs that he was only, only, un, only able to uncover but thanks to persistent um, investigations and subpoenas to banks. Uh, that's great. So Judicial Watch is the, uh, also the independent watchdog because Congress isn't perfect, I don't need to tell you. And we often do more than Congress to uncover government corruption. And in this case, we're pursuing leads that Congress has talked about to figure out what's going on for real by suing separately and apart from Congress, Congress rarely sues, uh, to uncover these uh, corruption documents specifically related to Biden. And in this case, we sued the National Archives for records from back in the day when Joe was vice president for family business records tied to Joe Biden. And uh, we began the process in February this year and the archives told us they've got records, but they don't want to give them to us. And I'll tell you the circumstances. Uh, We filed the Freedom of Information Act uh, against the archives for Biden family records and communications regarding travel and finance transactions, as well as communications between the Bidens and several known business associates. So we saw what Congress was pursuing. We said, well, we need to ask those similar questions. The lawsuit was filed after the National Archives have yet to produce any records in response to our request in February this year for records or communications from former Vice President Joe Biden regarding, and I'm going to read this because the list is is well worth listening to, and you can go ahead and. Use your search engines and internet to find out more about some of these names. You'll be you'll be interested to in know what they have up to and what they've been implicated in. Any communications with Robert Hunter Biden, you know, the infamous Hunter, James Biden, Brian Biden, which is Joe's brother, his other brother, Francis William Frank Biden, or Sarah Jones Biden. I think Sarah Biden is married to James, so it's a sister-in-law. Between January 20th, 2009, and January 20th, 2017 regarding any international or domestic travel, any international or domestic financial activity including but not limited to banking and financial institutions, overseas bank accounts, credit card companies, bills, invoices, fees, arrangements, financial arrangements, payments, wire transfers, contracts, QuickBooks, financial spreadsheets, business proposals, office or residential leases, rent payments, real estate transactions. Any communications with the Biden family members I noted regarding the following individuals or companies? Devin Archer, Jiki Bao, Tony Babalunsky, who was one of the whistleblowers, Jeffrey Cooper, Catherine Dodge, Gangwen Dong, James Gillier, Patrick Ho Chi Ping, Vuk Jeremy, VUK, VUK, I think it's his name, uh, Zhang Jingjun, Yi Jingming, Jonathan Lee. I think I've been, you know, thanks to the coming war with China and Joe Biden's corruption, many of us become able to pronounce Chinese names we otherwise would never have been able to pronounce before. You see them enough and you hear them enough, you can figure out how to pronounce them. Jonathan Lee, Joan Mayer or Jonathan Pugh, P-E-U-G-H, Francis Person, Vadim Hozarsky, Eric Schwern, Sherwin, excuse me, Robert Walker, Mervyn Jan, Nita Madav, Mai Gitteri, any Metabi oh wait, <laughs> I was reading this as a, a person's name, it's actually a company's name. The infamous Metabiota, uh Rosmont Seneca, Hudson West, Owasco, another company, Bohai Harvest. Uh, s- what is this other one? Scanetis. S, s- C. S-C, excuse me. S K A N E A T E L E S. How would you? Scantinilis. Yeah, Scanetis. Eduro Global. <laughs> a Problem when I'm doing this all live to tape here or live. I can't go back and repronounce it so it's correct. Cold Harbor Capital, Lion Hall Group, any Chinese entity or company, the Chinese Energy um, Company CEFC, and of course, last but not least, what name didn't you hear yet? Burisma. Any communication between Joe Biden and the individual entities set forth in items 2A, any records to so 2A through EE, those are all the names any records, um, including um, uh, paper or electronic calendars regarding former Vice President Joe Biden and any individuals set forth in the um, list above. So we want the communications and records about the Biden family efforts, or I would say syndicate. Uh, Judicial Watch explained to the court, now they do have records, so the archives is the keeper of former president and vice presidential records. Uh, The archives acknowledged receiving the FOIA request, assigned it a case number, and claimed it had identified approximately 1,567 emails, 2,501 electronic files, and 445 pages of potentially responsive records that must be processed in order to respond to your request. The archives also stated, that it is required to notify representatives of the former president and the incumbent president and the former vice president prior to the release of any vice presidential records. The letter did not say when or or even whether any such notice had been given or would be given. On information and belief, which is language we use when we are confident something hasn't happened or it did happen, no such notice has been given. So just to be clear, we ask for the records from the archives and under the regulations when there are records concerning a president or a vice president in the archives here, uh, the, the, the affected president and or vice president and the current president all have a say or a vote. I wouldn't say a vote. I guess the, the way the interpretation, the law is currently interpreted, the current president has the ultimate say, um, as Trump has found out, uh, to release these records. So who gets a vote or say here? President Biden, Vice President Biden, so he gets, you know, he gets noticed because he is former Vice President, and as President he gets final say, and Barack Obama. So here, in terms of stopping us from getting the documents, we are facing potential objections, in addition from the archives slow walking the information, from Obama and Joe Biden. So this Judicial Watch lawsuit is against the archives but we're battling directly Joe Biden personally and Barack Obama personally through this litigation. Now obviously they're not personally being sued by us or maybe it's not obvious, but you can see they have a personal role in helping decide whether the records are gonna be released to us. And we know there are records and they haven't been released to us and the time has passed to release them to us under law. So they're already outside the law in terms of releasing these records to Judicial Watch and these are records that get to the heart of biden family corruption and um, this gets to the heart of the what joe knew and when he knew it about his biden his his family's what i would call rico activities and to reiterate on may 10th house committee and oversight on oversight and accountability chairman James Comer released financial records of the Biden family's business dealings showing that millions of dollars flowed from China and other foreign sources through a labyrinth of Biden family companies. The financial records reveal the Biden family and associates complicated network of companies set up during Joe Biden's vice presidency and the millions the Bidens received from foreign sources. The financial records also reveal how the Bidens used complicated transactions to hide payments from foreign nationals, including CCP-linked associates, and provide clear indications of influence-peddling schemes during Vice President Biden's tenure. So, you know, the National Archives is stonewalling the release of these thousands of records that, as I uh, highlight from Comer's statement, go to the heart of this Biden corruption story. And um, I think it's interesting that it's Judicial Watch suing for it, I'm not aware anyone else suing for it. Maybe some other folks have asked for these records. But why uh, we now know there's a group of records the archives is hiding, pretending that they are stalled and releasing the records because they got to consult with Obama and Joe. And we haven't heard hide or hair from the archives that that's been done. And now we have a federal lawsuit to make sure it's done in a timely way. So the American people have information about what Joe Biden was up to with this family racketeering operation, and I I think I'm fairly characterizing it, while he was Vice President of the United States. So an important new lawsuit for this corruption uh, that is um, hampering, I would think, our nation, uh, both abroad and here at home, because uh, Joe Biden's been compromised. Another major lawsuit related to government corruption and abuse and an issue that's shaking our economy is the way the Treasury Department has handled these bank takeovers or bailouts, however you want to call them. And we had asked for records from the key agencies in the Treasury Department about their decision-making and communications on these two big banks that failed, uh, the infamous uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Uh, we filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit for all communications between two components, the Financial Stability Oversight Council and the Office of Financial Research. Um, and all the, the records concerning the two banks I mentioned, Silicon Valley and Signature. Uh, both banks, as, I, uh, as, I, uh, as you may know, were forced into failure recently by the Biden administration. That happened back in March. The Biden administration's actions in attempting to resolve the bank failures will cost tens of billions of dollars, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation estimated. Now that money is, comes from, in part, the fees you pay as a customer through your bank to the FDIC. So they take, a, they take that money to cover any losses and subsidies needed to take care of uh, the banks that they've uh, essentially sh- shut down a- in California and up in New York. I think Signature's up in New York. The Financial Stability Oversight Council was established by Title I of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act and signed into law by President Barack Obama on July twenty-first, two 2010. It's tasked with monitoring the stability of the U.S. financial statement uh, financial system. And as we uncovered and disclosed with our friend Vern McKinley, who is an expert, uh, and he's a former Judicial Watch client, he's an expert on uh, on these financial oversight matters, um, uh, the Financial Stability Oversight Council is clearly incapable of providing either financial stability or oversight. It should be eliminated. So I have a feeling we're going to find uh, some haplessness in the least uh, here in terms of their management of uh, banking issues and regulatory issues that required uh, government takeovers or bank bailouts. On April 26, F- House Financial Services Committee Chairman Patrick McHenry, along with um, Bill Husenga, who is the um, uh, uh, subcommittee chairman on the Oversight Committee, um, and I guess there was another committee chairman, Andy Barr, sent a letter to the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, Uh, demanding it provide information previously requested more than a month prior from its meeting immediately following the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. So, you know, this oversight council met, and Yellen runs it, I think, as chair, and, you know, they couldn't get records to Congress, and they're ignoring Congress. So it's not just Judicial Watch that's being stonewalled. Congress is being stonewalled as well. Now, the Office of Financial Research was created to promote financial stability by delivering high-quality financial data standards and analysis in support, again, of this other agency and other um, oversight regulatory bodies. Now, uh, in its 2022 report to Congress, that office stated that it found overall threats to U.S. financial stability were elevated compared to last year, The 2022 report discussed how the systemic risk landscape was elevated as financial institutions faced more uncertainty from rising inflation, tight credit conditions, and uh, the geopolitical landscape. So we want to know what else they warned about, either formally or informally, about this bank or these banks uh, failing. I'm convinced these banks, quote, didn't have to fail. I'm convinced the decision to take them out were political. There were issues being faced in, um, in California, that requ- uh, the Silicon Valley Bank. It doesn't mean, um, you know, a bank failing doesn't mean everyone involved loses money. It means some people involved lose money. Under our system, if you have accounts um, that are under $250,000 or so, you're protected. Well, the Biden gang came in and decided to protect people who had accounts in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So that was a bailout, and it was at the behest, I think the reporting shows, by Democrats. So what I think we're gonna find in some of these FOIA requests, responses, is they didn't know what they were doing. They really weren't monitoring it. They didn't know about it until it became too late. And um, they didn't decide to do anything, not because they did a coherent, coherent economic analysis of the systemic rate risk of these banks. There's, they, they, don't, they don't know what, especially banks of this size, whether they're a systemic risk or not. But there is a systemic risk to the political system if favored political banks, or in the case of Signature Bank, a disfavored bank um, are allowed to continue to operate uh, without backup support from the feds. Now in the case of Signature Bank, If I recall correctly, it was Signature Bank that Barney Frank was associated with, the former Democrat uh, member of Congress who was a big critic of banks. Now he's on the board of banks. And uh, Barney Frank said, you know, this bank probably could have been fine, uh, but the government didn't want them in the business of crypto. So crypto is his favorite business. So they shut the bank down and used that as an excuse to shut the bank down. So this lawsuit, I think, is going to be very interesting. Massive bank failures induced by the Biden administration have rocked our economic system. The American people deserve to know the details of the costly interventions and government takeovers of Silicon Valley and signature banks. That Judicial Watch has had to sue for basic information about this banking crisis. It's just two banks. Suggests the Biden administration has something to hide, I'd say. So we'll see what happens here. You know, I just love the fact that we spend billions of dollars of your money, so it's not only your money through the banking system, through fees you pay, and then the banks then pay, or pay on your behalf and you pay for it whether you know it or not. And of course your tax dollar's are always at risk. I mean when you say you're backing up virtually every deposit in America, right? I mean that's trillions of dollars in potential liability. And this little old Judicial Watch who are asking questions about, well, how did this all come about? What's the theory of the case here? And it happened in 2008 during the last crisis. Judicial Watch was doing the basic investigative work. It, it, and it shows you how decrepit this city is, that th- this, these crises emerge, tax dollars are spent by the tens of billions, risk and liabilities to the American people are increased by the trillions, and it's little old Judicial Watch who's kind of rooting around in court trying to figure out what, what, what's happening here. And, uh, you know, between the debt fight and the banking crisis, you know, we can talk about the cultural war, right? And the assault on our children and the craziness in our schools, critical race theory. You know, but countries can end when you have incompetent and politicized government bureaucrats and elected officials Uh, mishandling and abusing their authorities to ruin our economic system, either through inflation, government-caused and worsened banking crises, and other situations like that. So our country can fall simply on an economic crisis in addition to all the other crises we're facing at the border and culturally. Uh, So as I keep on saying, these are dangerous times, and Congress is looking at it a little bit Uh, But dare I say it, not enough and certainly the media has zero interest in it uh, despite money by the trillions being put at risk. Uh, That's your money and the money of your children and grandchildren and frankly their grandchildren. Uh, So Judicial Watch is proud to be the only game in town practically speaking when it comes to holding the government to account for these crazed bank bailouts uh, that place every dollar in America at risk so uh, before I go I want to talk about also uh, a court hearing uh, we were involved in last week Uh, Judicial Watch represents a former sheriff and um, a Tennessee firearms group uh, trying to get access to the manifesto of that transgendered murderer who killed six innocents at the Covenant School in Tennessee I think it was last month now and uh, infamously the manifesto which you know I don't know if it's a manifesto per se but it's records and notes the person made I think they were found in her car um, that haven't been released yet and there's really no good reason for not releasing them so they've been stalling and stalling and stalling and the theory is that they don't want to release it and the there's been hesitancy politically to release this information uh, because the murderer was a transgender extremist and you know that it doesn't hurt. It it hurts the narrative that the left is pushing with their transgender extremists extremists all being victims as opposed to perps. And so, Judicial Watch, on behalf of our clients, sued. Um, media entities have sued, uh, and frankly, others have sued to come in and intervene. Schools come in and intervened. They're granted intervention. Uh, the parents have uh, come in and been granted intervention. And I thought we were going to get some decisions last week, but we didn't. Uh, So they've been – the parents are taking the position that a lot of this shouldn't come out. Um, And I don't think they're right. I don't think the law allows them to intervene like that. Uh, But we'll see what the court does. Uh, But I think we're going to get uh, a decision on June 8th. But the whole point is it's a much more complicated freedom of information or open records case down there in Tennessee that I think anyone anticipated going into it, and it's basic information. And it's, it's unfortunate that it's turned into, you know, the, the big case it has turned into, which suggests that the records at issue are important for the public interest. And, you know, what is the public interest here? In addition to the kind of how it reflects on the transgender extremist debate, but you have a lot of gun issues related to this. Uh, Tennessee there has been a push for more anti-Second Amendment uh, restrictions in response to the shooting. Well, these records could reflect on whether more or less gun regulations would be help, would have been helpful here. Security at the school, we might have more information on that, whether uh, we need more securities at this uh, more security officers at all schools. These records may reflect on that. Uh, now, the police are saying that a lot of the records, of the, in addition to the manifesto, can't be released because their investigation is ongoing, which is a little bit curious uh, since the shooter is dead. And they, uh, according to the records they filed and affidavits and declarations they filed with the court, well, they said, well, you know, we think he's, she's the only one, but we're not sure. And they might, need, they might need a year to release all the key information. Well, we don't obviously think that's right. Uh, But there were some more writings that they obtained, for instance, from her home that aren't, quote, part of the manifesto that they don't want to turn over at all, at least for another year. And there are some other records, you know, that may or may not be, you know, uh, releasable under the law, but, you know, need to be reviewed by the judge, which is going to review the judge. But the judge, to her credit, is going down to the police department, I think, on Monday or Tuesday. I think it's Tuesday, I think it's next week. And she's gonna look at all the documents directly. So I appreciate that hands-on approach, uh, but we'll see what happens. Now she has the manifesto, uh, so she already has that, but she hasn't doesn't have the full investigative file uh, that we're also asking be released. So it's been quite the fight. And um, my colleague, um, our uh, Judicial Watch attorney on the case is Russ Nobile, uh, she, he's been down there um, you know, dealing with all of this. Uh, so it's, um, <laughs> you know, it's not just a press release or a comment by me on video about, oh, we gotta release this manifesto. Um, where It means to get the manifesto release requires a lot of heavy lifting in court, uh, and it's not easy, and it's not pleasant, uh, you know, because we're dealing with some very emotional issues, obviously, related to the shooting of these children and the other three adults who were murdered. Uh, but, uh, you know, the law requires these records be released. And um, the court, I think, uh, was whether she was right to let everyone come in and have a say or uh, uh, is is one thing. But, you know, if the parents come in and they say they want to participate, it's going to be hard for any court to say no. Uh, but, you know, we've got to get this manifesto out. and. Uh, I, I don't see any lawful reason to withhold it, and I suspect that we ultimately will get the manifesto. Uh, so, uh, but it's going to be because of a lot of hard work and legal uh, and, and, and legal drudgery. I guess drudgery may not be the right word, but a lot of legal work uh, by our team, our legal team. So um, even a little FOIA in Tennessee, uh, requires significant resources to get the full truth for the American people. Uh, so we're proud to be able to do it, and the reason we're able to do it is with your support. So, um, oh, well, I can't I can't leave without acknowledging uh, the upcoming celebration or recognition of our our uh, those who died on behalf of our freedoms um, through Memorial Day. Uh, Memorial Day is a special day for me because the original Memorial Day. It's celebrated, you know, the government makes it celebrated on Mondays, but May 30th is traditional Memorial Day, and that's my birthday. So uh, Memorial Day has always been special for me. And, um, you know, here at Judicial Watch, and I'm sure, you know, you're all activists, and many of you have <laughs> family members who have served in the military. Um, you know, and the idea that you, anyone has died defending our freedom in the military Um is, is something that is just awe-inspiring for those of us who are still here, aren't, isn't it? And I can tell you uh, the least that Judicial Watch can do is to vindicate their sacrifice by making sure that the government uh, that, and the constitutional system and the nation that they died defending is the best that it could be under the law and standard, nation, and standard notions of ethics and morality. That we still have freedom, that American citizens aren't uh, are, are are able to um, exercise the freedoms uh, protected for them in our Constitution, uh, and of course their divine um, their divine rights, their rights divinely granted, I should say, are able to be exercised as well, irrespective of whether they're in the Constitution or not. And so you know those patriots who. Uh, Died for us. We recognize on Memorial Day. We celebrate their sacrifice, but I hope it's a time for us all to reflect whether we're living up to their sacrifice and uh, whether we're doing what we can in you know our various walks of life uh, to uh, make their sacrifice worthwhile. And if we think about it one day a year, it's better than never thinking about it at all. Uh, so I trust and I think that Judicial Watch. <laughs> I think, I, you know, I sleep easily thinking that well, I think we're doing a good job trying to honor their sacrifice. And I think many of my colleagues would agree, you know, well, everyone can always do better and more. And that's, what I think, what we should all endeavor to do. If you're doing great work on behalf of the country to honor their sacrifices, those who gave their lives defending our country, that's great. But also think about what else and more you can do. And I know that's what we think about here at Judicial Watch all the time as well. So I wish you um, um, a safe and blessed Memorial Day, and I'll see you here next week on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. Thanks for listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.